Well, good evening, everybody. Do you expect me to sing Aha, Take On Me? Do you guys know that song? Some of you do? Okay, well, if you're expecting me to sing Aha, then you are, you are expecting the wrong thing because I will not put you through that. So, uh, so today we begin a seven-week journey where we're going to be going through the book of Colossians. And uh, the book of Colossians, as Pastor Dan was saying, is actually not a book at all. It's actually a letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in uh, Colossae. And uh, the interesting thing is that there's no recorded uh, uh, kind of evidence or suggestion that, that Paul ever actually went to Colossae. In fact, uh, he wrote this letter when he was in prison, and, and a guy named Epaphras, uh, who he knew in uh, Ephesus, uh, in that church plant that he did, uh, had actually come to visit him in prison. And what happened was... Uh, Colossae is about 100 miles east of Ephesus, and in this church plant in in Ephesus, Paul built into this young man named Epaphras, and uh, he was equipped and encouraged and edified. He he, uh, was made into a fully devoted follower of Christ, and that church kind of grew up, and people were matured, and then finally mobilized, and Epaphras moved about 120 miles west to Colossae and, and started this church. And, you know, the, the cool thing is, is when he's coming back and uh, telling Paul about, about just all the great things that have been happening uh, in his life and, and the great things that are happening in this new church plant, that, that Paul gets to experience this through someone that he had discipled, somebody that he had uh, mentored. Now, through this letter, uh, we're going to kind of see what, what I call the classic love sandwich. I, I don't know if you guys know what the love sandwich of correction is, but, but uh, Lori, uh, uh, the business administrator here, and my friend uh, Heidi, that, you know, they, they serve the love sandwich of correction all the time. And basically what the love sandwich of correction is, is you start out with like, hey, you know, you're a really great person. And uh, and I know when, when you know I know when the love sam they think I'm an idiot but they, I know when the love sandwich is coming I, I I know what it smells like I know how it's served I know the wrapping and so it starts out the love sandwich is you know it's kind of encouragement and tell you a bunch of stuff that you're good at and everything and then inside the love sandwich is like everything that you're doing wrong, right? And, and then things that made them mad. And then they, they close the sandwich with the other piece of bread. They're like, but you're still, you know, you're wonderful and I believe in you and, and all of those kind of things. Well, while Paul's serving up in the, in the letter uh, to the church in Colossae, the classic love sandwich. And today we're, we're going to be looking at the first piece of, you know, love bread, essentially, where, where he's, he's telling about a bunch of just like the great signs of life that he sees, uh, that he hears about from Epaphus uh, in the church of Colossae. And then the next uh, several weeks, we're going to look at seven different heresies and different false teachings that were happening in uh, Colossae. And one of the main issues that we'll see is something called syncretism, 
that's happening there. And basically, that's a fancy theological word for saying the, uh, that what started happening in Colossae was this uh, combining of other philosophies and other religions. Uh, basically, this new church plan, and it started growing, and people heard the gospel, and they were excited about it. But there was a lot of uh, uh, just kind of pagan religions around, and there was also uh, a large Jewish community. So there, it became a big mashup of, of kind of religions. Probably one of the greatest examples of this that, I've, that I've, I've seen is in Guatemala. And I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but uh, I was in Panajachel and, and, and traveling around to some actually some different coffee-producing places and, and meeting some people, and it was really interesting to me to see the syncretism that was happening there. Basically, the Christianity and the Catholic Church and Mayan and Aztec uh, and other superstitions all coming together and kind of forming something that's kind of Christianity, but kind of, you know, Mayan and, and all of these kinds of different things. So Paul is essentially writing a, a love sandwich letter here uh, to basically say, hey, I am really excited about you guys, you know, becoming a church, but here's some things that, hey, you need to be aware of and, and talking about really the supremacy and centrality of Christ in a believer's life. And then he'll close it up right before Easter for us, uh, just kind of like encouraging the church to, you know, keep on growing and keep on, you know, equipping and um, encouraging and, and edifying one another. So if what you open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians, and uh, we're going to start right at the beginning, and Paul begins the letter uh, uh, like he he starts all sorts of different, you know, most of his letters, you know, like I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, and and things like this. But but remember, he had never been there, and and the people of Colossae, you know, they didn't know him personally, and but they knew of him. Like Paul was kind of a big deal. And uh, just, you know, they knew, you know, knew who he was. You know, he'd planted lots of churches that, that this was the mentor of Epaphras and their pastor. And so they knew a whole bunch about Paul. They knew that Paul had, you know, had this kind of uh, uh, conversion experience on the, on the road to Damascus. They, they knew that he was kind of a head, heavy hitter in the world of Christianity. I was trying to think of a, an equivalent for us uh, today, like if I busted out a letter and say, guess who wrote us a letter? You know, and, I, and, and somebody that you'd be like, whoa, you know, that's pretty cool that they wrote us a letter. And I was like thinking of different people, you know, like the Pope or, or you know, Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. Uh, uh, I like threw out like Rick Warren and a lot of people in the morning were like, ooh, Rick Warren, you know, and, and you know, like, dear purpose-driven brethren, you know, or, or something like that, you know. It'd be cool, man. I'd be all about getting a letter from Rick Warren. I'm not bagging on Rick Warren. I just, you know, I'd wonder what his letter would be like. Uh, uh, or, you know, like maybe, you know, for, for this generation or, or something, you know, like Rob Bell or, or Mark Driscoll or, or, or somebody like that. You know, somebody that, like, hey, we've, we've heard of them and, and uh, they, you know, they've done a lot for the kingdom and, 
And, you know, we'd like to hear what they have to say. So that, that's kind of receive this, you know, this letter, you know, kind of like, wow, you know, this is pretty exciting that this is a personal letter from somebody who, who you know, was doing a lot in that time to basically a really small uh, church in, in Colossae. So he starts out in verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Timothy, who was another church planner. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, before I go any farther, two weeks ago I made a big deal about the word holy, if you remember that. And we talked about the uh, use of, of holy in the, in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. And we talked about about holy in, in the New Testament, in the, in the Greek uses for that. Remember all that? Some of you? Okay. Well, it's important because he's sitting here saying God's holy people, and we said there, there's two different distinctions, right? There's holy as God is holy, and that's uh, hagiosmos, which is absolutely pure. And then there's the other kind of holy as hagiazu, which, which is set aside for God's purpose. So, Knowing that there's seven false teachings going on here in Colossae, so, you know, uh, Paul's writing to God's holy people, is that absolutely pure or set aside for God's purpose? Set aside for God's purpose. Okay. I'll stop beating this drum when we get it. So I just, uh, but it's important because, you know, the word holy shows up a lot in the Bible. So it's good to know which one that, that it's being referred to. So we are writing to God's holy people, Hagiazu, in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after this kind of, you know, this introduction, like, hey, you know, this is who I am, he starts going into the things that, that he had heard um, uh, from their pastor. And, and, and he goes in and, and, and opens up all of, you know, these kind of positive signs of life that Epaphras had shared with Paul. And in verse 4, he says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This is the same good news that came, that came to you as going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Now, I don't want to just kind of gloss over these, these five signs of life because I think they're really important. That these are things that, that Paul has heard about from Epaphras and, and, and is excited about and, and, and wants to really just kind of uh, commend them and reinforce that, that these are really good things. So he first off, his first sign of life is their faith in, in Jesus Christ. And, you know, observable faith can be a real tricky thing. We know that from, 
basically the example of first century, uh, the first century Pharisees or the religious rulers of the day, who who really did a you know a good job in doing these external kind of signs of faith. But we know, according to Jesus, that, that their faith was hollow, that Jesus said that, hey, your hands are so clean, but, but your worship is a farce. But there is something about observable faith. There's something, you know, there's signs that, that, that you can see that there's action really uh, attached with faith, that, that James writes that that you know, with, without works, you know, your, your faith is dead. So how does that all work? And I was kind of thinking about it this week, and, and, and really I think the reality is that that action is the prelude and the consequence of faith. It's action is the prelude because basically when we hear the good news, that we hear the gospel for the first time, that, it, that, that it's asking us for a response, that we need to respond. So so really, action is the prelude to faith, but actually once we've come to faith, that, that our faith in Jesus Christ should be a transformational thing, that, that it should move us to action. So, you know, got to remember, Paul is writing this, so, so I, I, I can, I'm pretty sure that they're, you know, they have an active faith that, that is proven uh, time and time again in how they interact with one another, with God, and the world. The next one that he talks about is the love for God's people. Now, Paul doesn't go into specifics, but again, we can extrapolate from, from really Paul's understanding of biblical community that, that this is not just kind of uh, like, hey, I love you, and oh, you know, I, you know, and you love us, and you know, let's all sing kumbaya. That, that this, is a, this is a real, tangible love that... I don't know, but I would imagine that, that the, the community, the church plan in Colossae, like the people were looking out for one another, that, that people were looking out for uh, uh, opportunities to be generous and to build one another up and to look out for one another and, and kind of all these kind of, you know, being patient and understanding and all these kind of things and making allowances for one another's faults. And these are all kind of these biblical ideas of what it means for God's people to interact and love one another. The next sign of life that he talks about is uh, a confident hope. Now, there's a difference between hope and a confident hope. A confident hope is a hope that you will act upon. Like, have you ever like been walking in the woods or something and you see like a, you know, maybe an old rotted tree that it's fallen down across a river or something and you, you, you know, you're walking with somebody and you go like, you think it'll, you think it'll hold and, and you know, I don't know, I, I hope it does. And, and you can always tell if somebody has a confident hope or, or just kind of like just a, like I hope I win the lottery hope, you know, who, you know, if they suggest that you go and try first or, or, or something like that. I think that a confident hope actually uh, is just that, that, that it, it, it uh, assumes a, a response or, or it, it, uh, it, it requires a response. Like I could, I could stand up here today and say, you know what, I hope that I win the marathon 
in the 2016 Olympics in Rio? And you'd say, okay. But for me, to, in order to have a confident hope that, man, there would have to be some serious life changes happening. In fact, I would imagine people who actually have a legitimate, confident hope that they may win the marathon in the 2016 Rio Olympics, that, you know, they're not hanging out at Momo's and, and, and drinking beer and, and stuff like that, that, that their lives are, are being patterned around that goal because, you know, that they're eating right and they're training and they probably have a coach or, or multiple coaches and, and they're probably reading all about, about running. And, and I love this idea of a confident hope and, and Paul talking about this confident hope that they have because, again, that, that says something about that community, that, that they have this confident hope in Jesus Christ and that they're patterning their lives around that confident hope, that there's, there's examples that there's been life change based on that confident hope. The next sign of life is expectation, and uh, expectation, you know, what do you expect is really what we've based this, this whole series around, and, you know, the little image on the, on the screen there of of the two guys on a motorcycle, and, and, and one guy's looking at that other guy going like, why are you eating pavement? And, and you know, all this kind of, kind of thing. Really, in, in races, in motorcycle races, or, or triathlons, or running races, or the, the race of life, we all have expectations. Some of us, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing in races, you know, I, I'm a completer, not a competer. You know, it's because their expectation is not going to win, but I, I have this expectation that I'll finish. You know, some people, you know, they go out and they, they expect to win. They have a confident hope that they can win. And in this kind of illustration, you know, some people expect to crash out and not, and not finish in races and in the race of life. It's just, it's a reality. And really what we're talking about here is, is life. The big question, you know, what do you expect out of life? Do you expect to win? Do you expect just to kind of complete? Do you expect to crash out? What is your expectation? And here's the reality about expectations. Expectations say more about your past than about your future. Expectations... Uh, are most clearly understood about uh, um, for me when I was thinking about the, this this week uh, when I used to play little league baseball when I was you know little Marky you know ten years old you know hit the bat glove all that kind of stuff cute little hat uh, and I was thinking about it and I was kind of thinking about my my little league career and, you know, just kind of the people that, you know, the coaches I had and, and just kind of my, my experience. And I was thinking back and, 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 and in the kind of the, through the, the filter of expectations, it, it occurred to me that there was always, you know, two, at least two types of kids that, that played Little League. There was the kid whose, whose dad or mom were at every single game, right? 
that and a lot of times they were at a lot of practices as well, but but they were always definitely at the games and they were, you know, cheering and maybe they, you know, had, you know, like a shirt that says Bobby's number one fan or, or you know, something like that, like one of those obnoxious parents and everything. And and it was interesting. I was thinking about this and and those kids, they rarely looked over at the bleachers. They paid attention to what they were doing. They focused on the game because they knew that their parents were there. But there's another kind of kid, and you know where I'm going with this. There's a kid who, who you know, a lot of times had errors, you know, what, because they weren't paying attention because what were they doing? They were looking over in the bleachers, right? Wondering if, if, Today was the day that their dad or their, their mom was, was going to show up. And the saddest thing about, about this is really what happened toward the end of the season. Because toward the end of the season, the kid whose parents were always there, you know, kept on focusing on the game and, and really didn't spend a lot of time looking over the bleachers to see if mom or dad were there. The sad thing is that the kids whose mom or dad never showed up or rarely showed up or showed up late stopped looking over at the bleachers. Why? Because they didn't expect them to be there anymore. And that is when the spirit got crushed. And, you know, He's talking about these expectations, and I think the reality is in, in expectations, you know, we're not playing Little League anymore. We're playing life. And, and you know what? Maybe our parents aren't there, but, but in the big questions of life, we're looking to see if God is there for us. And I think that, that a lot of times, for a lot of us, we have, we have looked over and, and, and we have known that God is with us. But the reality is that there's people in this room who've been looking out in the bleachers and they keep hoping that God is going to show up. And let me tell you something. If you haven't seen God show up in your life, it may be because you're looking in the wrong place. Because God is not in the bleachers. God is standing right beside you. And that is the difference for people who, who have this, this, this expectation that God will show up. They know they don't have to look in the bleachers because they know that God is with them. That God is Emmanuel, God with us. And then he, the final sign of life is he talks about understanding that results in change. You know, this, this praise of understanding that, that results in change, I think it's a very interesting thing to me because the reality is that information that changes nothing is useless. Information that changes nothing is absolutely Useless. If I, if I told you that there was a person in the lobby right now who, who you know, needed, 
you know, $10 so they could, they could feed their child. And we didn't do nothing about it. We're like, oh, thank you for the information. That information would be worth nothing. I don't believe that there's somebody there who needs $10, so stay here. But, uh, but, but you know, uh, but if I, any information that, that you gleam or, or get, you know, uh, if, if you don't act upon it, and I'm not saying all information needs to be acted upon. Some information is absolutely useless. But, but if you're given a word from God and, and you, you don't do anything with it, you have deemed that information useless. That's why we say here that the value of today is what lives beyond it, how it lives in your life. I had a meeting with a guy uh, several years ago who goes to our church, Steve Metz, and uh, I gave him a bit of information that he, uh, Steve is, uh, is a lawyer, and I told him about another lawyer who used to go to E3 who moved down to Guatemala and started a ministry called Porch to Solomon, and I uh, just really felt that God wanted to bring them together. And I gave him that information, and uh, the, the truth is if he never did anything with it, nothing would have ever happened. That would have been useless information. But he called Lloyd, and they have built a friendship over the years, and, and he has gone down there, and people have been blessed, and houses have been built, and, and people have been given medicine because he acted on that information. And what Paul is, is saying here is, you know what, you guys receive this understanding, but it you took that understanding, you put it into practice in your life, that it, that it changed your life. And from those five signs of life, he continues on in, in verse 7. He says, you learned about the good news, the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. I don't know if you caught that. I've never caught this before um, this week. And it actually made me stop and reread it. And there's something so immensely beautiful that's happening here. Such a beautiful picture of the church. Let me read this sentence again and see if you can catch it. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker, he is Christ's faithful, faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. Who's Epaphras? He's a guy in Ephesus who Paul ministered to, who grew up and was mobilized and went to a place where Paul had never gone before in Colossae and planted a church. And that church grew up and now has sent Epaphras back to Rome to help Paul when he is in prison. That's a beautiful picture of the church. That's what, what I'm calling the Epaphras effect. The Epaphras effect is when multiplication happens, but then there becomes you know, a, a blessing blowback. And blessing blowback is unexpected. I had, I had the epiphrastic uh, effect happen um, for the first time in my life and never so clearly in my life is when uh, God called me to come to Tallahassee. It was so cool. I was like sending out 
letters uh, for support and everything to start up what we are all experiencing today. And let me tell you, as a, as a church plan, there were some people that, you know, like, I, I knew that they were going to give toward this. I mean, it was people that I'd done life with and, you know, you know probably baptized and done a lot of things. And, and you know, it's almost kind of like, you know, you don't want to, you know, this is just kind of just, you know, I didn't want to expect it, but you kind of expect it, right? And, you know, those people gave, and it was really cool, and it was really exciting, and, and it was neat for, for them to give toward that. But you know what was really, really cool and, like, took me totally by surprise was this Epaphras effect. Because I started getting letters and, and checks from people that I had never met and, and, and places that I'd never gone to. And I'd get letters from people saying, like, you've never met me, but... but you know what, you know, somebody that, that you breathe life into, somebody you baptized, you know, moved and, and, and had mentored me and had told me about you and your church and, and was telling me about that like, you're starting a new church in Tallahassee and, and I want to be a blessing to you and I want to be a blessing to that new community. And that's the Epaphras effect. That's the, that, that's the blessing blowback that, that you don't even expect. You have no idea the seeds that you are planting and the investment that you're making in people, where it's going to go and, and the life change that's going to happen. And then when you are in need, maybe you'll be in prison in Rome or maybe you'll be planting a church or who knows, maybe you'll need a kidney. You'll get that Epaphras effect. I got Lindsay's attention on the kidney. I like that. And you get that blessing blowback. And that is a beautiful picture of the church. Let me finish up with verses 9 through 14, where he's basically just really talking about, essentially, you and I know that he's just setting them up for the, you know, the love sandwich, but, but he's just kind of finishing up the, the love bread here, the wonder bread, the love bread. You know, he's like, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, we already talked about what information and knowledge is without action is, is useless. So, he goes on and say, look, with this complete knowledge, with this, this spiritual wisdom, with this understanding, this is what we're going to hope that it's going to transform in verse 10, that the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. And then he goes on, he says, we also pray that you will be strengthened. What's another word for strengthen? We just did a whole series on it. Edify, that's right. We pray that you will be edified, that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to the people who live in the light. He's talking to him and he's painting a beautiful picture for them of the church and what it's going to be like as we are completed in Christ. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our over the next six weeks, 
we'll continue in this, in this really personal and powerful letter. And I believe that there's so many parallels in the culture that we're living in now and the culture of Colossae, of things that are trying to infiltrate our faith, things that are trying to move Jesus off his rightful place of being the king of our lives and to replace him with something else. And I believe that Paul's letter to Colossae is also a letter to us. Will you guys pray with me? Dear God, I just uh, pray for this this uh, time and this journey that we are going on, that, that it will be a journey that, that will prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls uh, to celebrate your resurrection, that we, we can be not people of the grave, but we can be people of the empty grave, that we will be people of the risen Lord and a risen Lord that is central and reigning supreme in our lives. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.